Oh, I'm so glad to be back at Heritage. Feels like we, we're back home and uh, this is right. This is our facility, our, our, uh, our weekend facility that we have our services. So I'm really excited and, and we have a great passage to look at today. Why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to finish chapter 9 today. We're looking at verses 35 to 38. So you can open your Bibles there. I'll start as usual by reading the text. Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They like, were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Don't miss the tender moments with the little ones, they tell me. And one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite moments was when my daughter, when she was little, when she figured out that she could listen to daddy's heartbeat. And she would find me sitting, climb into my lap, straddle my waist with her little legs, and then press her ear against my chest to hear it thump. And I could almost feel her head move as my heart pulsed. She was so tight on my chest. Then she'd sit back and smile real big and grab my head and try to put it against her chest. It was kind of hard to do, but those are tender moments with the kids. And There are tender moments in Matthew's Gospel when he pauses and he presses our ears to the chest of Christ so that we can hear His heartbeat, what moves Him. And we see one of those tender moments here in this passage. We see the King is going to show us His heart for His mission. And we would do well to pause and to listen. Amidst the hustle and bustle of life, we can easily lose touch with His heart. We can go through the motions of religion and it results in kind of spiritual apathy and lethargy. We lose motivation and excitement in our faith. But when you press your head to the chest of Christ, when you hear His heartbeat, it's like a defibrillator, whatever that word is, for your heart. It gets your heart pulsing in rhythm with His. You start to desire the things that He desires. You start to want the things He wants. You start to see the way that He sees. And so that's what we want. We want to conform into the image of Christ. And so when we get this window into His heart, we want to pause and listen and see and make sure that our heart is aligned with His. That we want what He wants. And that we're close to Him and in touch with His heart. So why don't we pause and pray that the Lord would work in our hearts before we look at this text this morning. Bow with me. 
Father, we ask that you would help us to see the heart of Christ in this passage. God, that we would see your heart manifest to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, and I pray that you would conform us into his image. That you would grant us the heart of Jesus Christ for the lost. And that with that beating heart, God, we would move. That compassion would move us out to be faithful workers in your harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, point number one in your outline, we're going to look first at his heart. His heart. What is his heart? If you look at verse 35, it's almost ex- an exact repeat of chapter 4, verse 23. It's kind of like the bookends of a section. And Matthew shows us the scope of Jesus' ministry. He endeavors, he has three primary endeavors. He teaches, he preaches, and he heals. And Jesus is thorough. He leaves no stone unturned. You, you might have noticed I emphasized the all. He went throughout all the cities and villages. He healed every disease and every affliction. His ministry is extensive. He goes everywhere. His power is comprehensive. It's displayed over every opposing force. And his influence is massive. He's drawing a crowd here. And so I want you to picture the scene with me. As Jesus is working, he's being followed by crowds. Massive, massive crowds. At points, he's pressed into a boat. Because there's no room on the shore and he needs to get out so that he can preach to all of them. At other points, he's pushed up a hill. He's packed into a house. These are massive crowds pressing in on Jesus. You know how sometimes uh, comedians or performers will say, wow, this is a good looking crowd. It's not so with Jesus. Remember who is in this crowd. He's being followed by the diseased, the afflicted. The possessed, the oppressed, the blind, the mute, the paralyzed, the lepers, the sinners, the tax collectors. And by the way, by the way, mix in a few antagonistic Pharisees who are accusing him of being a servant of Satan. That's his crowd. It's like the beginning of a, a Southwest commercial. Want to get away? I mean, that's how I would feel. How would you feel looking at this crowd? What do you think about? This kind of crowd pressing in on you in your life. Would you be overwhelmed at the massive pressure to meet these people's needs? Would you feel drained because everyone just wants something from you? Would you be annoyed because these people are so ignorant of the Scriptures? Would you be discouraged by the lack of faith in the majority of the crowd? Would you be angry because of the antagonistic responses of the Pharisees, how would you feel about this crowd? It might be different than how Jesus feels about them. How does Jesus feel about this crowd? Look back down at the text. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Wow. Compassion for this crowd. 
we see here a window opened, a door opened into the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, when He sees lost, hopeless, helpless sinners like you and I. He has compassion for them. He has compassion for us. I think Matthew pauses at this point. He's been making a convincing argument that Jesus is the Christ. He has fulfilled these biblical prophecies. We've seen Him do it. Conquering every disease, sin, the whole lot of it. But Matthew also shows us. He didn't just walk amongst the crowds to merely fulfill prophecy. He walks among the crowds because He has compassion for them. His heart beats for them. The Greek word for compassion, it finds its root in the Greek word for inward parts, the gut, the entrails. It's a, it's a sympathy that one feels all the way in the pit of their stomach. They are moved with compassion. Richard Sibbs writes this, When Christ saw the people in misery, His bowels yearned within Him. Charles Spurgeon writes, He is stirred with a feeling that agitates His inmost soul. I believe that the disciples saw it in His face. Probably tears rolling down His cheeks. Otherwise, how would they have known that it was this level of visceral emotion? That's what Christ feels. A compassion that moves Him from the stomach. He is literally bearing the grief and carrying the sorrow of the crowd. Isaiah 53. He sympathizes with human weakness. He's the high priest who not only takes pain away, but takes it upon himself. He feels their pain. So think about this. When you press your ear to the chest of Christ, what do you hear? What's his heart? You hear your own sorrow, your own pain, your own agony that he is bearing for you. That is the compassion of Christ. That's his heart. You need to know that no one understands or knows your pain like Jesus Christ. He knows it thoroughly. He bears it. His compassion bears it for you. Here we're given another answer to why. The first answer to the why. Why, why was Jesus plodding from city to city, preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, healing all these diseases? The first answer was that He was fulfilling prophecy. The second answer the thing that moves God to plod from village to village, city to city, to teach the Bible, to preach the gospel, the why He touches the unclean, why He does eat with sinners and tax collectors, why doesn't He turn anybody away? Because He has compassion for them. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you. He has compassion for you. He loves you more than anyone could. Dane Ortland, in his book, um, Gentle and Lowly, he writes this, Merciful affections stream from the innermost heart of Christ as rays from the sun. So I ask you have, you, have you touched the heart of Christ? 
Have you bathed in the rays of His mercy? Have you been washed in the stream of His compassion? Have you tasted and seen His goodness? Are you poor and afflicted? Helpless, needy, a sinner? Run to this Savior. Go to Christ. He invites you. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. Have you touched the heart of Christ, firstly? Secondly, do you have the heart of Christ for others? Those forgiven much should love much. Those who have received mercy should be merciful. When you look out at the afflicted crowds of today, the world, what do you feel? What's your visceral response? Is it disdain? Are you annoyed with the world? Are you frustrated with them? Are you disgusted by them? Are you angry with them? Are you apathetic toward their spiritual condition? Or do you feel compassion for them? Do you have Christ's heart? Do you, do you want to be kind to them, to show them mercy, to be sympathetic? Because you know how they feel. And you know where they're at spiritually. You were once there. But since then, you've been washed, not because of what you've done, but because of the grace and mercy of God. So shouldn't we have a mercy and a compassion for the lost, just like Christ? Do your eyes roll at the, at the foolishness of sinners, or do they tear with compassion for their desperate spiritual condition? I'm reminded of a pastor who would go to a Starbucks and he would just sit there and watch people, people watch. And of course, all kinds of problems and issues would come in front of him. You know, couples that were fighting and having, obviously, by the display, not close in relationship with each other, you know, kids that were being scolded, kids that were engaging in sinful activity, kids that would go up and hassle the baristas. And he would just see all these sinners come through. And he would not leave until tears were rolling down his cheeks. He would not leave until he felt the compassion of God for lost sinners. Do you have that heart? Do you have the heart of Christ? One that wells with compassion for the lost. That's what we see here. That's where we see his heart. And obviously his heart reveals our need. His heart reveals our need. And that's point number two in your outline. What is our need? The compassion of God reveals what we really need. We need a Savior. We need a Savior first. We need a Savior. We need a shepherd. And we need faithful workers. We need a Savior, a shepherd, and faithful workers. Why does does Christ have compassion for them? Firstly, because they were harassed and helpless. The text says, harassed and helpless. That's the image of being roughed up and and left for dead. Imagine like an animal on the side of the road, been hit and just left there. That's the condition of these people. Or furthermore, Christ explains with an illustration, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are pretty foolish and dependent animals, they need a shepherd to lead them, to protect them, to feed them, to care for them. These are all 
illustrations of, of what we as sheep need. We need a leader. First, we need a Savior. We need a leader. And then we need somebody to protect us. We need somebody to care for us, to feed us. The shepherd's role is vital to the life and well-being of the sheep. The condition that these people are in, as Jesus looks upon them, like sheep without a shepherd, this is primarily an indictment on the bad leadership in Israel at this time. If you look at the prophets, you go to Ezekiel 34, our scripture reading. And in that passage, God charges Israel's leaders for being bad shepherds. We read it. Let me just draw out some highlights from that prophecy. They were feeding themselves, but neglecting the sheep. They were eating the fat, clothing themselves in wool, but they did not care for the sheep. God says, the weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you rule them. That is the leaders of Israel at this time. So the result is is that the sheep have been scattered and there is no shepherd. Well, Jesus is looking out on these people and seeing a similar group. Here are people that have been oppressed, wrongfully taught, and spiritually abused. The religious leaders of Christ's day, they're feeding themselves with the temple tax while demanding more from the poor. They preach tradition, ceremony, and law, but they neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says in Matthew 23, they're tying heavy burdens and placing them on people's shoulders. Rather than preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says they shut the kingdom of heaven in their faces. So these sheep without a shepherd is primarily an indictment on the bad leadership in Israel during this time. They've been left abandoned. They've been beat up and left for dead, these people, spiritually and physically. And compounded with the spiritual abuse that they've experienced, they're also responsible responsible for their own sinful wandering. Isaiah 53 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all wandered, each to our own way. And so Christ sees not only the desperate physical condition of the crowd, but He sees their desperate spiritual condition. They are sinners. Lost and hopeless and helpless without a Savior. And the same is true of you. Without a Savior, you need a Savior. We are all hopeless, helpless, lost sinners without Jesus Christ. Without salvation. That's our first need. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And so Jesus, seeing this pitiful condition that they're in, He doesn't leave them for dead like the rest of the bad shepherds, of Israel, he has a heart to save them and to lead them. And so he is, in some ways, well, he is the, sorry, he is the way that these people will be saved. But these people also need a good shepherd. They need a good Savior shepherd, one who both fulfills the office of Savior, but one who's also a shepherd that would lead them, care for them, And even lay his life down for them. If you go back to Ezekiel's prophecy, God tells 
the people of Israel that he's going to provide a solution. Did you hear that when Keith read it? He said, I'm, I'm against Israel's shepherd, shepherds, and I will rescue my sheep. Verse 10. I myself will search for my sheep and I'll seek them out. Verse 11. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Verse 16. I will set over them one shepherd. The servant of David. Now we know who that is. Right? By the cries of the blind men. Who did they say Jesus was? The son of David. Here is the answer to that prophecy. The good shepherd who has a heart for the sheep, who will seek them out and has come to save them. Isaiah 53, 6. How does he do that? How does he save them? Well, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. I already read that first part. But here's how we are saved by the good shepherd. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does a good shepherd do? Jesus tells us what a good shepherd does. In John chapter 10, he says, a good shepherd lays down his own life for the sheep. Here's the answer. Here's the answer to the problem. Jesus looking out upon the crowd, he sees their desperate need. He has compassion for them and he knows he's the answer to their ultimate problem, their need. They need a savior and they need a good shepherd. And Christ is the answer. Oh, I... I know for some of you, you know you need a good shepherd because you've wandered and you've become lost and you've been hurt and you're afflicted and spiritually you know you can't save yourself. You need a good shepherd. You need Christ. You need the one who can atone for your sins, forgive you, and also can lead you to good pastures to provide and care for you and protect you. You need Christ, the Good Shepherd. And the third thing that we need, we need faithful laborers. We need faithful laborers. In verse 37, Jesus says to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few few. Jesus is saying there's plenty of harassed and helpless people out there. Plenty of lost sinners who need a Savior, but there are not as many laborers to reach them. When Jesus looks up at the crowds and says that the harvest is plentiful, I think that wording kind of confuses us. We might think of like if the harvest is plentiful, if it's bountiful, then like Jesus is looking out at like a lush garden with a bunch of just plump, ripe, juicy fruit that just simply needs to be plucked. Like, like Jesus is just going, you know what, hey, I just need some, some casual pickers out there. I just need some people to walk through the rows and just pick out all this plump, juicy fruit. That's not what Jesus sees here when he looks out on the crowd. He's not seeing people that are just ripe and ready to receive Christ. He's looking out on the crowd. He says, the work is great. A lot of work needs to be done here. There's a lot of work out there for the laborers, the workers of God. I need more laborers 
more laborers. The majority of these people will reject Christ. We're told that in the next chapter. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. And then later we see that the majority of the people of Israel reject Christ, stand opposed to him. But Jesus says, we need more laborers out there preaching the gospel of the kingdom because among the majority, there are a few that will respond, that are wheat, that need to be harvested. You know what's interesting about the word harvest here is that when you see the harvest referred to in Scripture, it's primarily referring to Judgment Day. Do you know that? The harvest is primarily referring to Judgment Day. The prophets use that language. In fact, we see in Revelation chapter 14, one of the angels, or an angel cries out to another angel, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so that angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The urgency is there. Jesus looks upon the crowd, and he doesn't see a bunch of people going, help me, help me spiritually, I need salvation. He sees a lot of people scattering and running towards judgment. And he's looking around and saying, we need more workers out there proclaiming the gospel so that they would repent, turn around, and believe. We need workers, laborers. Both wheat and tares are collected at the harvest. God's the one who sorts them on judgment day. But he needs laborers to go out and preach the gospel. To be faithful even though they will majority of the time be rejected. He looks upon the crowd, he sees a crop that has been soured with sin, sheep that have scattered because of bad leadership, and he looks to his disciples and says, these people need evangelism. They need rescue workers. They need faithful laborers who will sow seed of everlasting life, who will cast their shadow on the stalks to save some from judgment. Which shows us God's mission strategy. How will God save these people? What will He do? What's His plan? What is His mission? Well, that is revealed in verse 37 and 38. So thirdly, in your outline, His mission. His mission. They need a good shepherd, and they find a compassionate one in Jesus The people need faithful laborers, men and and women who are willing to go out into the the crop and, and minister to them, primarily by preaching the gospel of the kingdom and calling for repentance. And where will he find these people? Verse 37 and 38, let me read it again. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Really, it could be translated, the harvest is great. It's big. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This is interesting. This is interesting, fascinating. Jesus shows us, this is the beginning of his big plan. Kind of shows some of his cards here. 
See, Jesus doesn't have a one-man mission strategy. Think about it this way. I mean, Jesus could have stayed on the earth indefinitely. Went not only to all the cities and villages in Jerusalem and in Israel, but he could have gone far beyond that. Jesus could have stayed indefinitely. He's God. He didn't have to, maybe after dying and raising from the dead, he could have just stayed and and started moving throughout the world to every region to reach every nation and done all the work himself. He could have done that, right? He's God. That's not his strategy. That's not his plan. His strategy, get this, is to have disciples go out and make more disciples. Isn't that interesting? Disciples, he's looking at his disciples. He's going, my strategy is not for me to be a a one-man show, to go from place to place and convince people. I want you to go out and make more disciples. I want you to go out and labor amongst the crop and preach the gospel. It's a multiplication strategy by the Lord Jesus. This is the beginning of his master plan for evangelism. It's like an introduction to the book. This is our first glimpse to go, how is God going to do this? How is his gospel going to be spread throughout the world? He's sending disciples like you and me out to do his work. We have a responsibility in this mission, don't we? We're a part of this plan. The megaphone of God will be the mouths of many laborers who go out into the harvest. Notice that He is the Lord. Look back down at the text. Verse 38. He is the Lord of the harvest. The curios, the owner, the supreme ruler. This is His harvest, not ours. He's the one who sends out laborers into the harvest. Evangelism is undoubtedly a sovereign work of God. It's His plan that He sets in motion and He fulfills. And He commands His disciples first to pray. Did you see that in the text? He doesn't first say, okay, get out there, boys. He says first, pray. Pray. There's something we can learn from that, Christian. What's your first response when feeling convicted about evangelism, feeling conviction about those lost people around you? Maybe you look out in your neighborhood and you feel compassion for them because they're lost and helpless. Or your coworkers, or, or lost family members. What should you do first? Pray. Pray. Go to the Lord of the harvest in prayer. Your participation in the Great Commission starts there. And that's very simple. Every single one of us can go home today and do this without, before even having a conversation with someone. You can start with prayer. Going to the Lord. J.I. Packer in his book, The Sovereignty of God and Evangelism, he writes this. He says, when we're on our knees, we know that we're not in control. It's not in our power. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves or for others, including salvation, must be sought from God. And it will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from His hands. When's the last time you've gone to the Lord with an evangelistic heart to see the lost saved? When's the last time you've prayed for non-believers that are in your life, in your circles of influence? How about this? When's the last time you've prayed for laborers 
Let's look back at the verse. Notice, Jesus doesn't command them to pray for unbelievers. He says, pray for God to send laborers. Pray for more evangelists. Pray for more men and women that are trained up, equipped with the knowledge of God's Word and and an ability to share the gospel so that they will go out and multiply and make disciples. Pray for workers, laborers. Why? I can think of several reasons why. Why would God, well, why would Jesus ask the disciples to pray for laborers? A couple reasons why. Number one, there's always a need for laborers. There's always a need. Always a need. The harvest is great, he says. The world is big. There are many nations to reach. Not to mention the plethora of spiritually abused people around us. We are in a city, well, Fontana, of a, of a population around 220,000. That's a big population. If we look out upon, among the people of just Fontana, we're going to see a lot of people that are harassed and helpless, lost, and without a shepherd, without a savior. They need the gospel. Even people who have grown up in church their whole life and been taught by a a bad shepherd, they need the gospel. They need faithful workers to go out. There's always a need for laborers. Always a need. Because you know what? The bad spiritual leaders that God was facing back in the time of Ezekiel, that Jesus faced in, in the first century, and that we face today... They're all the same. They're all like wolves that are poaching sheep. They, they fly under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but their mission, their motive is really self-fulfillment. To have a platform, to indulge themselves, to get rich, to become wealthy off of poor sheep. We see that. We see a plethora of that in just America. Bad spiritual leadership. People come all the time explaining how previous pastors you know, what previous pastors taught them or what they told them in person. So I hear about spiritual abuses all the time, even in our valley. There are sheep that have been harassed and helpless. And we need to go out. There's always a need for laborers because the harvest is great. That's the first reason why. He says pray for laborers. Pray for missionaries. Pray for evangelists to share the gospel. The second reason, and I'm hinting towards this, is that we need more people sent by God and less people who send themselves with ulterior motives. We need more people that are sent by the Lord of the harvest and less people who send themselves with ulterior motives. I'm talking about bad shepherds out there. Missionaries who, again, function under the banner of sharing the gospel, but they're really out for their own riches, their own platform, their own power. We need to go to God because we want more people sent from Him, not from Satan. Not people who, as Keith prayed, who function under the banner of angel of light, but are really out to deceive and to further blind. So we need more people sent by God. So that's why we should go to Him in prayer. But this third reason should compel you. Why pray for more laborers? Why go to God and ask that He would send more workers to go out into the harvest. Because it begs this question, and listen to this. Are you the answer to your own prayer? 
Are you the answer to your own prayer for laborers to reach those people? MacArthur says it this way. He said, it's possible to pray for someone's salvation while keeping them at an arm's length. But when we sincerely beseech the Lord to send someone to witness to him, to them, we place ourselves at his disposal to become one of his workers in that ministry. Are you ready to be the answer to your own prayer? Are you ready to be the answer to that prayer? Lord, send more faithful workers out into the harvest. Are you ready to be one of them? When you're praying for your lost family members or a lost neighbor or coworker, start praying that God would send someone to share the gospel to them. And then try to resist the overwhelming conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are that someone. If you keep praying, oh God, I pray that you would send someone to share the gospel to Sally. I pray that you would send someone to the God to share the gospel with Sally, and then you realize, I'm the only believer in Sally's life. You're the answer to that prayer. You'll be able to feel compelled and convicted to go out. God has given you a heart for their salvation. You're praying for them. God has placed you in their circle to reach them. And you have the opportunity to proclaim the good news. Are you ready to be the answer to your own prayer? Ask yourself that question. What circles of influence has God placed you in to evangelize and make disciples? Fathers, this is a call to you to make disciples in your home. This is a call to you. you God has given you a crop, hasn't he? Precious children, a wife to disciple, to spiritually lead. You have these children to evangelize. Are you being faithful, a faithful worker in that crop? God has placed you in the workplace, men and women. Are you being faithful to that crop? Are you being a faithful worker and evangelist, proclaimer of the gospel? In whatever circles and avenues that God has given you to share the gospel, are you praying for laborers to go out and are you ready to be an answer to that prayer? We should be if we have a genuine compassion for those who are lost. J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he suggests three effects that, that should take place if we really believe in the sovereignty of God in our evangelism. They should have these three effects. One, one, it should make us more bold. It should make us more bold. We have every reason to believe, to be confident, to be unashamed, because the gospel message we share is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't depend on the way we say it our convincing speech, our arguments, it's God's power for preaching His Word. So we should be bold. Listen, we tread the soil, but God tills it. We sow the seed, but God grows it. We reap the harvest that God receives for His glory. So let us be bold and faithful. He sees the process through start to finish, and that should make us bolder to engage in the process. One, it should make us more bold. Two, it should make us patient. Be patient. Farming requires patience. Sometimes the the crop springs quickly. Other times it takes a while. I I planted last spring, I planted cilantro seed in in one of my gardening beds. 
And the cilantro grew and it produced through spring and summer. And then at the end of summer, it got so hot that it just kind of started to die off. Okay, so the whole plant was dead or visibly dead. So I ripped it all out and I threw it in the trash at the end of summer. Well, lo and behold, okay, we had a a couple of big rains last fall, 2022. And at the end of fall, I see a little cilantro sprout spring up in in my gardening bed. It's amazing. That's sometimes what happens when we evangelize. We share, we sow, we sow, we sow, and we tend, and we keep talking to the person. We're persistent. Sometimes we don't see growth until way further down the line. God uses the seed that we have sown, and He finally springs forth a sprout. So we need to be patient and trust God's timing and not be forceful with our own timing. Trusting in the sovereignty of God, it's His harvest It should make us patient. And then thirdly, he suggests, and this comes back to the command of this passage, it should make us prayerful. It should make us prayerful. At the beginning of his book, Packer submits that everyone believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Everyone does because they pray that God would save their friends or family members. So in the very act of prayer, you're entrusting yourself to a sovereign God to save them. It's an interesting argument. But if we really do believe that God is the one who saves, then it should make us all the more persistent in going to Him in prayer. Praying for those lost loved ones. Praying that He would send more workers out into the harvest. May we be a people that respond to the heart of Christ, the need that we see, well, we see in our own lives, but also out in the crowds that we minister to, and His mission to have the compassion of Christ. Do you have the heart of Christ when you see unbelievers? Will you commit to praying as a first step of participation in the mission? And will you consider offering yourself as an answer to the Lord's prayer for more workers and laborers to go out? How will you respond to His heart the people's great need, and His mission. How are you going to engage in that? And by God's providence, next week we've got an experienced evangelist to hopefully share with us more about the heart in evangelism and the means and the method by which we do it next week. And may we be faithful workers, laborers, out in our various crops sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me close us in prayer. Father, again, I ask the same thing that I asked at the beginning of the message. I pray that you would conform us into the image of Christ. I pray that we would, that our hearts would be like his heart, that we would be close to him and have the same heart that he has for the lost. God, help us to see the great need out there. The harvest is great. Help us, God, to consider ways that we can meet that need. First, in prayer. We'd be a prayerful people in evangelism. But secondly, God, that we would be faithful workers that go out into our various crops and continue to sow gospel seed. Continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are unsaved and lost. Help us to be faithful. And I pray for anybody here today, God, that needs to first touch your compassion, needs to first be saved by you, Lord, to proclaim the gospel to others. 
I pray that they would first be right with you, O God. That they would surrender in faith to Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That they would find the compassion that you have overwhelming. A compassion to remove sin from them as far as the east is from the west. You have shown your compassion through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would see Christ, behold Him, and surrender in faith, believe in Him, and have a relationship with Him, God, this morning. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.